everyone to Authors on the Air. I'm Pam Stack, normally your host, uh, but not tonight. We are proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. It is my absolute honor and privilege tonight to have two of the best writers I know visiting me here on Authors in the Air. Most of you know that every year my friend James Lee Burke comes on as soon as he gets um, his new book out. And for those of you who don't know, A Private Cathedral is ready for you to order, has already been reviewed, and has been claimed as one of the best new books of 2020. But besides that, um, I feel like you needed to have another interviewer besides me. So I invited another friend, writer David Corbett, to come on. Um, David's latest book is The Long Lost Love Letters of... Excuse me. The long lost love letters of um, my my mind just went blank, David. Uh, of Doc Holliday. He is <laughs> there also you go, Doc Holliday. He's he's and we've talked about that by by the way. He's also a former private investigator. He writes nonfiction on character, and he contributes to just about every online magazine. He is also a creative writer and instructor. It is my absolute honor and privilege to introduce David Corbett as your guest host tonight. David, take it away. Hi. Thanks so much, Pam. That was really sweet of you. Um, well, of course, we're here to hear from Jim Burke, who I think all of particularly high esteem, just I think he's the bar for the rest of the time writers that few of us have been able to achieve. First of all, he's written 40 novels, not just in the Dave Robichaud uh, series, but the Holland Family Trilogies, the Hackberry Holland novels, the Billy Bob Holland novels. And he's also uh, earned two uh, Edgar Awards. He's been a Breadloaf Fellow, a Guggenheim Fellow. His accomplishments are, are so significant. And yet, it's the thing that brings us back to his books time and time again, her incredible evocation of place. As a, a fellow writer friend of mine, G.M. Ford, says that he can't read a Dave Robichaud book without sweating because the bayou comes so alive for him. And the, the, also the themes that I think we're going to talk about tonight especially, that he has come back to time and time again, about the nature of evil, uh, the man's... Uh, constantly trying to find meaning in a life where he knows that he's mortal and his deeds may not add up to much. The new book, um, I think, was summarized really, really well in an AARP uh, review that Jim uh, shared with me this morning. And I'd just like to read that to you, because I think it really does sum up what this new book is all about. James Lee Burke's novels have always had a spiritual side. That's part of what makes the long-running Dave Robichaud series so appealing to readers. That and Burke has the poetic gifts to match the otherworldly musings his Louisiana lawman occasionally finds himself dwelling on. The latest installment is the furthest yet Robichaud has wandered into the other side, as he finds himself in the middle of a dark, generations-long feud between two criminal families and also finds himself hunted and hunting a mysterious assassin who seems more specter than man. Jim, nice to meet you, uh, to have you on board here tonight. Well, thank you for having me on your program. So, 40th book. I guess you're kind of getting the hang of this by now. Well, yeah, right. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, um, I've, I've always enjoyed your work, and, and in fact, I even went back and uh, looked at the neon rain a little bit as I was reading this book, and um, but there's something I think particularly special about this, and it is that fact that I, I, I think some people have said that you're, you're it's a, it's an exciting new foray into horror and science fiction, but I don't think that's true. I, I think it's more a case where you simply pushed the themes you've always been addressing just a little bit further. Am I right in that? I, I think that's correct. In uh, this book, A Private Cathedral, is the third in a trilogy. It can be read separate of the other two books, but the three books narrated by Dave Robichaux uh, go back to the themes I've written about for many years. And and uh, in particular, one of those uh, themes, I think, is just the problem of evil, for lack of a better word. Uh, is it something that we create? Is it something that seems to just linger in human history or is, is, as an external force that inflicts itself on us? or? Because Dave yes. has a particularly odd nemesis in this book in that regard. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, and the book does deal with Dave's uh, attempt to discover the source, the origins, if not evil, of human cruelty. And, of course, he's seen many things in his life that he wished he had not but I think that is the big question that we ask, one of the great mysteries, that what indeed is evil, and if it exists, if there's something that's an actual presence, what, how did it come aborning? And it's like the mystery of creation. I mean, this has been my experience. I'll be 84 this year, but I've never figured out anything, and I've come to one conclusion. The great mysteries remain the great mysteries. Well, I, what I noticed in, in this in particular, and the character we're talking about is named Gideon Ricchetti, and he seems in, in many ways, one of the things that makes him so fascinating is he seems to be as troubled as, uh, as Dave and Cleet themselves about the nature of their own actions and the nature of morality. I mean, he sees himself in, in a very sort of wounded light. I found that really fascinating. Okay, we, we, we meet a character named, uh, as you say, uh, Gideon Rochetti, and he was a servant of uh, devious men during uh, all the beginnings of the age of reason and you know he was around there was a man who uh, <clears throat> there were many men like Gideon Rochetti who did terrible things during the medieval period and during the renaissance as well and that era of just tremendous human cruelty lasted from the dark age uh, into the age of reason and it was imported to our country there in Massachusetts. The uh, same forces that uh, caused people to create the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition in particular, those same forces came aborning in Massachusetts and Salem in 16, uh, 
Lardy, what was the date? Um, 16, Remember, there's 1642, uh, is it? 92, 1692. And they, they hanged their best friends. They put... 19 people to death. They pressed the blacksmith with stones. It was a horrible way to die. And these are our ancestors. These were Christ baptized Christians. And the people who stoked the ovens at Auschwitz were baptized Christians. How do we explain that? And I'm, I, that's what this book is about. Oh, I... I have to admit, that, that reminded me of it. There's a beautiful description of Cleet in this book, and I have my notes in front of me. Let's see if I can find it. And, uh, oh, here it is. Uh, because one of the things you just touched upon is the, the almost baffling nature of human contradiction. And I think Cleet in particular has always been a great emblem of that, and he's particularly vivid in this book. And you write of him... Uh, the of his violence put the fear of God into child abusers and rapists and misogynists, but it was also used against him. He was the trickster of folklore, a modern a quasi-psychotic jarhead who did two tours in Vietnam and came home with the Navy Cross and two Purple Hearts, memories he shared with no one. I love the, the, the description of there's a... a well, when you talk about the lonely child, you know, an alcoholic father, that he carries in his wallet a picture of a mother and two children heading into Auschwitz. And then later on, you describe the priest, Father Hebert, who, like Cleet, seems to be able to see virtue in everyone but himself. And that, that, that virtuous nature, and yet the sort of haunted sense of, like to that, that that ferocity of violence is something that I think makes, has, has made him one of the most fascinating and enduring characters in crime fiction. I, I think a lot of, of us in the genre feel that way. Well, Cleet Cursell is a great character, and Dave here describes him as Michael the Archangel with singed wings. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I also but, that, that when but, you bring up Sancho Panza, the thing that, that you know, Sancho isn't violent. But he is earthy, and he's realistic, and he's always re um, responding to Don Quixote's, you know, lyrical musings with down-to-earth Spanish proverbs. And I, I, there's something of that same kind of moral argument between Cleet and Dave and all of the books that always just anchors me in the narrative. And that I believe that Dave kind of believes in forgiveness and maybe redemption. And, but isn't sure, and Clint just says, nah, it's not possible, but he wants to believe, and that's one of the reasons why Gabe is his best friend. Well, there, there are two sides. These two men are two sides of the same coin, and as you suggest, their antecedents are uh, Sancho Panza, the lout, <laughs> the fellow who's always in trouble and drunk, and the man who has a worm's <laughs> eye view of the world, and the idealist, uh, tilting windmills, you know, Don Quixote. But they're, they're a bit larger than that, I think, all due uh -huh. respect to Cervantes. Um, Dave is the blue-collar knighty rant. He's a figure right out of the everyman plays. And the whole story is, actually, and Dave says that many times. He refers to 
the story he is telling as an Elizabethan tale. And the figures are out of classical mythology. The advantage today of having a classical education is very few people have a classical education. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of puts your leg up right away. That's terrible. It's like I... I've been taking stories from the Bible now for over 60 years, and I'm afraid I'm going to be in trouble one day. I don't know too many people who are good for plagiarism. But anyway, more seriously, uh, the story makes use of what, in effect, is the Aristotelian notion of tragedy. And in order to have tragedy, the protagonist must have the virtues that we admire. And the tragic tragic figure, of course, precipitates his own undoing. And so Dave, Dave certainly has those characteristics, and so does Cleet. But neither man is complete without the other. And Dave and, and know that. They're really spiritually joined at the hip. But they're great characters, and I think they represent what's best in us. And I've always been proud of the series, and um, I think this book is the best in the books. There are 23 of them. But anyway, I I, I hope people enjoy it. But the story, again, is about, it's not about Louisiana. It's not about cops and robbers. It's not about police procedure. And I think if there is a hell, it's a place where people are forced to sit in a room and read procedural novels for all eternity. (laughs) It's waiting. I know several people maybe associated with current politics who might be on the – I hope they've got their library cards (laughs) ready – I want to get back to that, but you, you also <laughs> mentioned uh, <laughs> the problem is they don't read. I, I think I know who you're talking about, and they're not. They're readers, going but, to. Yeah, they're, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's something oh, I'd pay geez. to watch. Um, but, but you also mentioned once that the crime novel. Guys, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I was I was going to uh, move into. Um, the, uh, you once talked about how the crime novel has taken over the niche in literature that the sociological novel used to take, and I think that one thing that you've done is do that, but also again with this classical mythological sense of of story. And I think that's really unique. Um, I remember Alifair once saying, there's, there's not too many uh, writers in the crime genre who are talking about Shakespeare and Aristotle and Homer. But you do, incredibly, and, and write with that kind of authority. I, I, thought, I thought that way. In fact, um, you, when you're talking about the kind of guys we just talked about, I had to, to know, I was just reading, uh, uh, getting back to Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men, and a book I love, and a writer I love. But when I was reading it and reading the prose, um, it was your writing that very much came to mind. There's a sort of southern 
for lack of a better word, just a southern poetic instinct, a storytelling instinct that really shines through in that. You're talking about Robert Penn Warren? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, and Robert Penn Warren is uh, <clears throat> a man whose work has never been given adequate uh, credit. He was a titan. And <clears throat> there are many others, of course. William Faulkner's famous statement, the past is not even the past, uh, is one that we forget often. And it, because we're a young nation, we tend not to respect antiquity. We think of the past as a something that has, in, in effect, impeded our uh, development as a nation. And it's a terrible mistake to make because... The founders of the Republic were all children of the Enlightenment, particularly Jefferson. George Washington was as well, certainly Franklin, Adams, every Monroe, Madison. They had this enormous respect for the ancient world. Why? Because all the great wisdom, the, the sciences, everything that made us, in effect, a democratic society, had their origins in the pre-Christian world, going back to the golden age of Pericles. And so when we look at, back at, the, at those dramas, we suddenly we meet Sigmund Freud, because Freud took all of his nomenclature from the Greeks. Their myth, mythos, which we sometimes use in a degree, de- derogatory way was in effect reality to them they understood the coupling of the spiritual world with the physical world they believed that it was animated by thought by science by the logos who in effect was the central intelligence but to to in effect chuck chunk the ancient world over the gunwales is a terrible mistake. Now, we're laughing about demagogues in present times. Uh, All of these fellows have the same characteristics. They are driven by narcissism, anger, greed, all of the cardinal sins. But what is it that they lack? Answer, a knowledge of history and they never learned the lesson they could have by just spending 20 minutes in the library. In other words, Mr. Mussolini ended up upside down in a filling station, and that's the end of all these fellows. It's The story is biblical over and over and over again. They fall upon their own sword. But that doesn't release us from the contract we have with whatever hand shaped the clay and blew his breath into the human spirit. We have that contract today, and we have almost violated it, I think. And I believe we're right, we're tipping right on the edge. I don't think that's just metaphor, I don't think that's an exaggeration. It's here, right now. We're looking at it. And if we do not make the right decision, God help us. And I even think that that given the damage that's already been done, a great deal of the next move will be simply trying to repair 
if, 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 if we're successful in simply ending this regime, there's going well, to be so also, much that we have to repair mm-hmm. that, that, yes. that it's, it's going to be a daunting task. I mean, it's, but it, we've got to do it. If we, well, if we value I, our republic. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. I didn't mean to proselytize or even to be political. That, oh, you weren't. Mm, that, that was great. I, 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 I think that's something that needs to be said and heard. And I agree but, with you. Dave Robichaud talks about a figure, someone who's waiting in the wings, who's been there a long time. And he says this figure will be, in effect, a successor to his antecedents, which include Huey Long, Joseph McCarthy, and George Wallace. Okay, those three men took us right to the edge of another kind of society. That spirit goes back to the 1830s and 40s. Nativism, uh, xenophobia, racism, uh, the years after the Civil War and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. It has been with us a long time, and now it has become manifest. And I was born in the Depression. This is the first time in my life where I have felt that it might actually happen. We're right on the edge of fascism. People can, look, let me put it in another frame of reference. I've seen and been around things I will never tell anybody about. I don't talk about them. I've written about them. And I guess I've spoken once, but I've always regretted talking about some things I've seen and right here in the United States. And I remember things I saw some many years ago that convinced me that the this is my perception. We do not all descend from the same tree. There's another group, and that group is capable of anything. And I learned after a particular experience, there are people who would man the ovens in Auschwitz in a blink. And that is not an exaggeration. They do not belong to the same category as the rest of us. If I, I have, This is what Dave dwells upon when he goes and visits mm-hmm. a friend in uh, the Texas State Penitentiary. And, of course, Dave attended two executions in Angola. There are certain things you never talk about again because, number one, there is no explanation for them. Any psychiatrist will say that. Any psychiatrist who has worked with these kinds of people, I'm not talking about the criminals. I'm talking about the people on the other side of the bars. Every psychiatrist listening to this right now one who has dealt with what we call social or psychopathic people knows there is no explanation. Forget child trauma might have something to do with it to a certain degree, but it do, it is not commiserate with the consequence. The cause is far less. There is no way to describe it other than to say. Perhaps there are some who simply are born evil. Now, there's certain if you've ever been around them, 
There are certain characteristics all of them have. They never tell their secrets. They take them to the grave. When, um, what was his name, Bundy, when he was executed, he killed maybe a hundred women. He could have given some some relief to the parents who never would be able to visit their child's grave. But he didn't do it. He had nothing at all to gain. But all of them have. They're incapable of remorse. And the peculiarity is uh, you can look right into their faces, and they have no more complexity than, my heavens, I don't know, a bucket full of wet cement. There's nothing there. <laughs> there's a and great good line from Jim Harrison in an novel where he describes that. And he says there's... um. Uh, the, the, the complete quote, I think, is something like that. The terrible truth is we don't get to be anybody but ourselves. Um, if you doubt me, uh, look into the eyes of a Hollywood actor. See the folly whirling in their eyes. And um, the folly whirling in their eyes has always been a, a line that I've, I've, I've just taken away with me. But, and it reminds me of a line that you once said, uh, you used in Wayfaring Stranger, that I think applies to what we're talking about. And you were talking about certain Texas oil men. And it was that you know, men proud in their ignorance. And I think yeah. that really does define something that you're getting at. It's almost like, you know, I don't need to know anything. All I need to know is what I want and how to get it. Well, I've always, I forget who said, used this term many years ago. I've never forgotten it. But it's the authority of ignorance. And it's a t- <laughs> tremendous form of it's a tremendous form of authority because it has no handles. You you can't debate it, but that's it. And um, <clears throat> anyway, I don't want to depress people. People turn on this program <laughs> well, and go out something. and shoot themselves. <laughs> well, you in an article for the week recently. You talked about the some the, the books that you would recommend to everybody. The one crime novel you mentioned was um, um, Mystic um, River. Dennis Lehane's uh, Mystic River. Yeah, which I agree is this marvelous book. But you yeah, also think brought it's up Flannery yeah. O'Connor. Yeah. And you and one of her stories in particular, where we're talking about this this ignorance, the authority of ignorance. It's a story yeah. called The Barber. I think you know what yeah, where this liberal teacher decides to go in and argue with the barber about um, about racism in the South, and uh-huh. just gets his head handed to it because it's just. It's 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 impregnable. It's we used to have a phrase when I was a PI, which was it's like uh, it's like talking to a, a paranoid, because paranoids just believe if you begin questioning their reality, then you just become one of them. <laughs> you become yeah. one of the enemy. And there's something about that, you know, the ignorance. Whereas if if you question their rock solid certainty, you're just one of the enemy. Well. Um- I'm glad you mentioned Flannery O'Connor. She's another one like Robert Penn Warren, whose importance in literature seems to have slipped. And uh, she was she created some of the greatest characters in American literature. Good I, I, I think Thomas Merton. When, when um, I don't think of her uh, comparing her to modern authors, I think of comparing her to Sophocles. And um, and I I think that really rings true. I agree with you. I think she's one of the most underrated writers of the 20th century. And you read her stories, and there's just not a wasted word. There's they're just crystalline 
and searing in their moral clarity. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I just I, I love her. She's been one of my favorites since uh, since high school. Um, I wanted to talk though about one more aspect of this new book that I think you pushed Dave into a whole new area, and that is the fluidity of time, what we might call the nonlinear sense of time that Dave begins to discover. I found that really fascinating. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that. Well, my father was something of a historian, and he subscribed to the notion that time is not sequential, but instead all events happen simultaneously. The the unborn are actually with us, those who have passed on are out there, and that it's... <clears throat> All events occur as though in the mind of God, a dream in the mind of God, as he said. That was my dad's view, and I've always shared that. And I, uh, I believe there's another world on the end of our fingertips. It's not demonstrable, but I, I think non-belief is a more difficult uh, view of creation and time than belief. I, I, cannot, I cannot understand people who, with, with great authority, who announce with great authority that um, there's nothing beyond the experience of what we can see. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, look, I mean, Einstein said that. There's a, a cause and there's an effect for everything. But he says at some point, and he talked about on the edges of infinity, when he said, these, this was his, I think, sentence, the uh, laws of physics do not apply because there is no explanation. If, if, how can there be infinity? How can something be endless? But even more difficult is the question, how can space end? And if it ends, what's on the other side of it? It's, there's, there's no way to explain these things, to my to my knowledge. I mean, I'm certainly not a person who knows much about physics, but look, I mean, for example, <clears throat> organic matter cannot think. It can't think its way into into being something. It can't dream up. The, the human eye and say, I think I'll grow an eye after I get finished growing my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the brain, that, that works pretty well. But, Let me try an look, eye now. We, we make things pretty well in a laboratory, but we can't replicate any of the things that nature has created. We can't do it. I mean, we can have a, a you know, it's like maybe work on developing a, a new toenail, perhaps. <laughs> Good heavens, I, I don't, I get scared. So I'm not scared. I get dizzy when I start looking at the stars. You know, just think of good heavens. You know, what about the Milky Way? That's just a small part of it. So, it's, you know, it's my my great worry, David, is the the abuse of the planet. I mean, I think we're killing ourselves and we're returning to nationalism. I mean, that's there's no question about that. And nationalism was the, of course, uh, inception 
of 500 years of war. And we thought maybe after this fling at neocolonialism, we were going to become a global family. And instead, it looks like we're going backwards right now. So maybe we'll come through this and things will be different. But I'm, I'm, it's I have a, a, it's a real question mark account. about that. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. It's a, huh? it's a sad state of human affairs that very often we the only time we learn our lessons is we have to suffer terribly for the, the <laughs> to get on the other side and see what we should have seen all along. And I'm really afraid that that's that we're in for a reckoning, and it's the only way we're going to see how to get out of this. Well, I, I, I fear that's true. I think there's yeah. a lot of people who don't want that, and a lot of people working against it. But sometimes there just seems a momentum to the stupidity, for lack of a better word. Um, who knows? And the greed, uh, which you talk about a lot in your books. I mean, you, you, you've you've delineated three types of, of, of villains uh, on, on another time when I heard you talk. And one was just the, the garden variety miscreant, you know, who's just just basically kind of a screw-up. And there's the psychopath, like, you know, uh, Wyatt and Buchalder and, um, and Legion Guidry. Although Legion Guidry is sort of an interesting marginal figure, not too different from Gideon Rochetti, in that he might not entirely be mortal. But the one that you have, that you said, that gives Dave and Cleet the biggest problems is the guys who pass off as legitimate. And here what we're talking about is that, that like you're saying, the force of, of nationalism, of greed, of ignorance. It's, um, and it's, it, it's, it's been with us virtually from the beginning, certainly on just a national level, and maybe eternally. I don't know. Well, I, I, I don't either, but I've, as I say, I go back to the same... Oh, I guess mantra. Hello, there's something wrong on it. Can you hear me? Hello? Hi. Hi. Hello? Hello? Okay. Uh, okay, I'm stepping in. I don't know what's happening. David's phone has kind of gotten a little wonky. Uh, David, are you back with us? He may not be. He may not be. Oh, no. And and you know something? He's way smarter than I am, Jim. He's way smarter than I am. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, um, okay, so, you're back. Oh, great. There you're great. He is. You're great. Oh, good. Okay, go ahead, David. Okay, I just I want to do. Um, I had basically t- tossed the ball over the channel, and suddenly I was gone. So um, uh, maybe the the listeners heard it all, but I didn't get a chance to. But that's okay. Um, I guess we were we were actually signed up for about a 30-minute interview, and I don't mean to take more of your time, but um, this has been great fun. I really want to recommend to all our listeners what a wonderful book this is. On on every page, the, the, the writing is superb. The ideas are, are scintillating. I was completely captivated by it. And I, I, you may be right. I mean, I, it's hard. I don't want to judge. But I think certainly one of your best, if not one of your best. And um, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I surely appreciate your having me on the show. And I hope I I got to apologize to the audience out here. I I I don't mean to seem to be a pessimist and I I have believe me if wisdom is acquired with age it went right past me and I've <laughs> learned very little and from my own mistakes and but um this is 
this is my feeling about hanging around the earth for I'm in my ninth decade now that in effect every day of our lives is a gift and that we I, as Dave Robichaux says and the Hollands say or all my protagonists say that in effect to be a part of the human family to enjoy the benefits of the day to live in a republic such as our own it's just an enormous gift from God and we must not abuse it and at some point we have to reckon with our brothers we have to understand that we share the earth and we share it with animals as well and we've done an enormous injury to the animal kingdom. I mean, everything in the Old Testament indicates that, that Noah, for example, was not supposed to break the skin of the animals. In other words, what is that early lesson in Genesis? Well, it's the following, that in effect, that life is blessed, that there's nothing more grand than the human heart. And all of these things are free, and when we give them up in the pursuit of commerce or wars or the seeking power over our brothers and our sisters, we actually commit a form of sacrilege. It's that simple. The church is a church, okay? But the the big woods, as James... Um, that's his name, James Fraser said, the biggest chapel is out there in the natural world because there's a, there's a sense that the first day of creation is still in the roots of those trees and that we are the stewards. That's the ultimate choice. And those who would turn the Grand Canyon into a gravel pit are the antithesis of everything that is sacred in our lives. In other words, that paganism, Christianity, good Lord, people's meditating upside down on their heads, it doesn't matter. The great gift of God is that daily touch of sunshine in our lives, and it's free. It comes up in the East every day. But anyway... That's enough from James Lee Burke. <laughs> that no, that was lovely, Jim. Hey, that was great. The world, really, I'm grateful. The world's no, but it's really true. Problems. <laughs> but no, but the, but you've touched on something. I think I, we all we won't we lose track of, which is this is sacred. This thing that this what is it, this thing I'm in? This thing I'm part of. This is well, the chapel, that's it. This is the cathedral. That's it. That's it, yeah. brother. I'm going to cut in right now and say that I am so grateful for my friend Jim Burke, who indulges me every year and comes back to Authors on the Air. Jim, you know I love you dearly, and I cannot thank you enough. David Corbett. Thank you. And David Corbett, also my friend and and his lovely wife, um, I... I could not have done this conversation without you. And I want to just say, if you want to find out more about James Lee Burke, go to his website at jamesleeburke.com. David, tell us where we can find you on web and social media, please. 
Oh, it's pretty much the same. DavidCorbett.com. That's my website. And then um, you can just find me on Twitter at uh, DavidCorbett under slash California CA. And I'm on Facebook. But I, the, the website's cannot, the best way to find me. I cannot thank you both enough. James Lee Burke, one of my favorite people of all time, never mind my, my favorite writer. Um, I will talk to you again when the next book comes out and maybe even before that. Right? Well, I sure hope so. I sure hope so, too. You enrich my life so much, and I thank well, you thank for you. that, my friend. Well, thank um, you, Pam. You're absolutely welcome, Jim. And, David, I cannot begin to thank you for once again stepping into the guest host position. Listeners and readers, go find A Private Cathedral and the Long Lost Love Letters of Doc Holliday. I want to thank you all for being with us tonight. And especially, I want to thank my mom and dad for giving me life. Have a blessed day. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. And I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Well, thank you. Thank you.